Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire Real Estate Agent Podcast. I'm Jason Abrams, and this is the place where we lift the curtain on the world of real estate like never before. Every week, I sit down with visionaries, pirates, and mavericks. We're here to document, demonstrate, and most importantly, demystify their game-changing models and systems. What secrets propel them to the top, and how are they living their dreams? This is about passion, it's about strategy, but above all, it's about real, tangible success. So buckle up and let's dive in. This is the Millionaire Real Estate Agent Podcast. Friends, what if I told you that I know a guy and this guy did something that I have never heard about before? Now you would stop the car, you'd say, Jason, you talk to everybody, you've heard about everything, how could that be? No, friends, that's exactly what happened here. Today, we are going to talk with Damon West. Now, this is a story of love, this is a story of redemption, this is a story of success, this is a story about getting sentenced to 65 years in prison. And it's that fourth one that we're gonna drill deep into. Now, Damon is a world famous author. He is a motivational speaker. And I promise you one thing about the next hour we are going to spend together. Friends, you have never heard anything like this. Listen to Damon West. I'm joined today by Damon West. Now, how I met Damon is a whole nother story, but he has written a bunch of books and he's literally traveling the planet right now telling his story. And the story is everything you'd want in a Hollywood classic. You have love, you have redemption, you have almost professional, you have college sports, and then you have prison. Damon, I get the first group there. How do we end up in prison? Man, that's Jason. That's a great place to start. Well, you just jumped right in, didn't you, brother? Yeah, and that's the thing. People love stories about prison. I found that out in my life. I go around speaking as a keynote all over the world, but universally, human beings love to hear stories about prison. Because here's what I think: the reason why is that that you you can't go into a prison. I mean, there's two ways: you either work there or you live there, right? And so. We want to hear stories about that. It's why the movie Shawshank Redemption is one of the best movies that's ever been made. It's so good. Yeah. If everybody loves Andy Dufresne. Yeah. Well, here's the deal about Shawshank too. It's like, and, and, I'll, and I'll tell the story about, about prison. We're going to talk a lot about prison. When I got home from prison, my mom and my dad wanted me to watch all these prison movies with them. They, they, my dad recorded every single prison movie that's ever been on TV. And he's like, well, you watch them all with me. He said, well, you were locked up. I recorded every prison movie, right? So we watch them all. And, um, I came back to Shawshank as the most authentic prison movie ever been, it's ever made. And here's why. Shawshank really captures what prison is about. Prison is a very hopeless place, a seemingly hopeless. I, I put the word seemingly in there because I want to qualify that, that it's not really hopeless. No situation is ever really hopeless, right? It's about your mindset and how you're going to get through it. But the movie Shawshank depicts a world of a bunch of men that are already dead. In fact, the main character story, Red, Red's a dead man when you meet him. Red's lost hope a long time ago. And, and the name of the title, The Shawshank Redemption, the redemption part is it, it isn't even Andy's. You would think it's Andy's because Andy's a wrongfully convicted guy. He goes to the Shawshank prison. He literally calls his way out through a wall and a tunnel of manure to get to his freedom. But it's not Andy's redemption that we're talking about in the movie. It's Red's redemption because here's why. 
Red's a dead man. All those guys were dead. Brooks, remember Brooks? Sure. Brooks made parole. He got to get out. But he lasted about two weeks. Then he hung himself. But he wrote a letter back to the boys in Shawshank, told him what he did and why he did it. And as Andy was reading that letter out to the boys in Shawshank, every man in Shawshank was nodding their head because they understood the same hopeless mindset that Brooks had. Red said to Andy, he said, I wouldn't make it out there either, Andy. I'm an institutional man now. Red even said the words to Andy out loud, Jason. He said, hope is a dangerous thing. But what did Andy tell Red? Andy told Red, get busy living or get busy dying. And and Jason, by the end of that movie, man, Red says the words out loud. Red's out of prison now. He goes to that wall. He finds the letter that Andy reads. He digs it out. Digs it out. Black rock. Yeah, and he he reads it. But he says the words out loud that let you know that it's Red's redemption and not Andy's. Red finally says hope is a good thing. And that's the thing, man. Um, Every human being has to have hope. And the world that I lived in inside of a Texas Supermax prison, it was the most hopeless, most seemingly hopeless world there is. My life, man, you know, me going to prison was about the furthest thing I ever thought would ever happen in my life. And in fact, I, I think most people that I ran into in prison, nobody ever set out to be a drug addict, alcoholic, a criminal, a thief. I became all those things. I wanted to be Jerry Maguire before Jerry Maguire was Jerry Maguire. And I know that that, that you've been called the Jerry Maguire real estate. It was only the New York Times and my mother called me that. Well, so. but, but still, but, but that's the movie that, I mean, I wanted to be a sports agent. I wanted to play pro football. I wanted to be a sports agent. But I became all those things. And the answer is because of addiction. Addiction, addiction affects everybody in this country, Jason. Whether you're the addict, the family member of an addict, the victim of an addict, the friend of an addict, the taxpayer, just paying into an overburdened criminal justice system that has no idea how to handle the disease of addiction. Addiction is one of the unfortunate things that unites us all, and, and I was no different. Jason, I had a great life, man. I grew up in um, Port Arthur, Texas, down in southeast Texas. And, you know, in Texas, we love we love high school football, man. And, and I came from a great family. My father just passed away this summer, but my parents were married for 55 years. Didn't come from a broken home or a split home. Had everything, every advantage in life. My dad... My dad was a pioneer sports writer, man. And in 1971, he becomes the first sports writer in Southeast Texas to put black athletes on the front page of sports pages. Yeah, first time it ever happened, 1971. And my dad put a black running back on the cover of the sports page. People lost their minds over that back in 71. They broke my dad's windows. They would slit his tires. They would send him hate mail. But growing up when I was a little boy, my dad would would pull me down and make me read those letters of hate mail. He wanted me to understand. He said, Damon, I want you to see what it looks like to take a stand and do the right thing. Because he said, sometimes, Damon, taking a stand and doing the right thing, it means you're going to stand alone. But he said, it is always okay to stand alone as long as you're standing on the right side of history. And this is really the principle I've got to rebuild an entire life on. When I go to prison, you know, two and a half decades later, but a uh, good student growing up, great athlete, three years starting quarterback for a 5A high school, scholarship to play Division I college football at the University of North Texas. And I mean, by the time I'm 20, I'm the starter of a Division I team. And I really thought I had arrived, Jason, but, but life has a way of giving us these days that I call fork in the road days. Those days that knock you down, you get up, you make a choice, life changes forever. My fork in the road happens against Texas A&M on September 21st, 1996. I get injured, and uh, my career is over at 20 years old. And I made a lot of wrong turns. It was around drugs. I got into cocaine, ecstasy pills, that kind of thing. Functional addict, though. I graduate college. I work in the United States Congress in Washington, D.C. I work for a guy running for president of the United States. But 2004, I was back in Dallas. I was training to be a stockbroker for UBS, United Bank of Switzerland. And it was at that job as a broker when another broker introduced me to meth for the first time when I was sleeping at work one day. And the introduction of meth to my system instantly hooked just like that. 
18 months after the first hit of meth, I was living on the streets of Dallas. The streets, brother. I went from Wall Street to the street, man. And I am homeless, and I live in dope houses. I sleep in cars. And I become a criminal at this point to fund my addiction. And it's it's petty crimes at first. And I think this is the way it happens with a lot of criminals in, in the world of drugs. It was shoplifting, breaking into cars, breaking into storage units. Then I started breaking into people's houses, Jason. And 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 I can't gloss over this because this is the reality of my story. I've got victims. I've got a lot of victims out there. People whose homes I broke into and my victims and my story, I didn't just steal property from my victims. I stole something way more valuable from my victims, something my victims will never get to replace. That's their sense of security. They'll never get that back, Jason. I can't replace that. I can't fix it. The state of Texas tells me that I can't even apologize to them because an apology to your victim is a felony and they'll send you back to prison for it. Really? Absolutely. I had no idea. I can never make an apology, and I won't. Well, let's hope someone's listening and happens to hear it, because it feels very heartfelt. Well, man, the thing about it is, Jason, there's nothing I can do about that, but what I learned in the program recovery, the eighth step is when you make a list of all the people you've harmed. The ninth step is where you make the amends to the people you've harmed, but they have a caveat in the ninth step that says, except when to do so would cause you or them harm. So... An apology that sends me back to prison actually does me harm. But they have what's called a living amends. And a living amends means you just go out and do good deeds and you expect nothing in return. This is why I spend so much time inside of prisons, inside of rooms of recovery and stuff like that, voluntarily, uh, senior citizen centers, stuff like that, ways that I can put back in the world and I ask for nothing in return because those are my living amends. That's how I make my amends in life because I'm not going to go back to prison for it. But after three years of committing property crimes against the people of Dallas, the Dallas SWAT team on July 30th, 2008, puts an end to the uptown burglaries. I'm literally sitting on the couch that day in this rundown apartment, July 30th, 2008. And I'm telling Tex, man, you don't want to be here. The cops are closing in on me. The end is near. Ten days before this, this guy that I was doing all these burglaries with in Dallas, Dustin, my partner in crime, my right-hand man, Dustin had been picked up by the Dallas Police Department in a stolen car. So... They got my partner in crime in custody, Jason, which I, I, I know this is just a matter of time before they have me in custody because here's an axiom about crime, a truism, that I think everybody should remember as we're going to go into some very high-profile cases in America. Everybody talks. <laughs> everybody talks. It's human nature, man. We want to save our own skin. And when the prosecutors start throwing around big time in prison, no one wants to be left without a chair when the music stops. Well, so you know this. I know it. Why don't you... Why do you stick around for 10 days? Like, why didn't you lamb chop it out of town as quickly as you could? Great question. And it's something I contemplated over and over again. But the reason that it kept me staying right there in Dallas, my dope dealer was in Dallas. Tex was there. Yeah, yeah. Tex. There's a couple other dealers I could go to. But now at this point now, I'm a pariah. Because everybody knows Dustin's in trouble because it's been on the news. It's a very high. The Uptown Burglary Crime Spree. That's what they called it, the Uptown Burglaries. They called me the Uptown Burglar. It was a very high-profile case. It was on the news that Dustin had been arrested. So the word is spread throughout the streets, man, stay away from Damon because Damon's the one that's gonna, they're going to get next. No one, I'm a, I'm a pariah. Texas, all I've got left. But I'm a dope fiend, you know? And I say fiend. That's a very derogatory term for an addict. But that's what I felt like. I was, I'm, a, I'm a drug addict. I'm addicted to this meth. I can't leave because I'm, I'm, I'm anchored to it because I don't have a dealer in another city. If I did, I would have been gone, right? So Tex agrees to deliver me some dope that day on July 30th, 2008. And as I'm sitting there telling Tex he needs to leave, the window on my right blows out and shatters. And then tumbling across that living room floor was a little canister going end over end. And it was smoking on one side. 
Jason, I've seen this movie before, brother. I know what this canister is about to do, and, I, and I'm trying to get out of there as fast as I can, but the flashbang grenade blew up in my face. The bright white light, the loud noise blows me back on the couch. And when I came to, when I can see and hear again, there was a cop standing over me in full SWAT riot gear. His boot was on my chest, the barrel of an assault rifle was digging in my eye socket, his fingers over the trigger, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, don't move, don't move. And I'm like, man, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> you got a gun in my eye. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah, man, you win, you win. And one of the cops, it's in my living room, glass everywhere, There's, it's smoky, it's hazy. I hear one of these cops scream out, we got him. We got the Uptown Burglar, and they had me, Jason. That was it, man. The Uptown Burglar crime spree came to an end. They zip-tied me. They took me to Dallas County Jail. They processed me in, fingerprints, mugshot. They throw me in a holding cell, and they set my bond at $1.4 million, an unreachable bond, especially for a guy that lives on the streets, right? And I deserve to go to prison. But the question was, how long? I'm sitting there through this trial. Like, how long are they going to give me? How much time? That last day, the jury goes to What was your hope? Because I know how it ends. Yeah. What, when, when you're sitting there and you're like, look, I know I'm going. Yeah. What was the hope time frame that you had in your mind? Brother probation was on the table. 10 years probation was on the table. And, and in my delusion, delusional mind, I thought there might be an outside shot. I could get probation, but 20 years at the most. I'm thinking that 20 years is the, the maximum for a burglary. That's a second degree felony in Texas. It's two to 20. When they attach organized crime onto a felony, they enhance it to another felony level. That's why my crimes were first-degree felonies. My crimes were all burglaries, which is a 2 to 20 charge. But a first-degree felony becomes 5 to 99. So, so, so in your mind, as you're sitting there, you're thinking, best-case scenario, 20. I'm on probation. Worst-case scenario, I'm doing 20. That's it. Out in three. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's you, you got the math down really well, too. That's about what time you're going to do on a 20. But the last day of trial, the jury goes to deliberate for 10 minutes. 10 minutes, brother. And I mean, it's like, I don't know how much law and order your, your audience I'm a Stabler is, fan, dude. No, yeah. Nothing happens within 10 minutes. Yeah, man. Nothing, man. Nothing. But it's when they come back in 10 minutes, you're, you're toasted, man. They, 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 they max you out. And, and it's, I know that I'm in real trouble. And the, the judge read the sentence that day. It was 65 years in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And man, the prison system quits calculating time on a timesheet at 60. I mean, when a jury says 65, they're really just saying 60 because 60 is life. 65, 99, those big numbers like that, that's for window dressing for juries, man. That makes them feel good about it. We gave this guy more time. Everybody that gets 60 and above got a life sentence. So I got sentenced to life in prison that day on May 18th, 2009. And I mean, it took the breath out of me. It took my mother gasped. She was in the front row and I heard my mother and I'm like, oh man, what did I just do to my mom and my dad? Right after the trial was over, my mom and my dad get, get about five minutes with me in this little area. It's like a holding area. They got a bulletproof glass right there. And my mom has this conversation with me, Jason, that changes the course of my life forever. And she's telling me that debts in life demand to be paid. You just got hit with one heck of a bill too from the state of Texas. But you did the things they said you did. You have to go and pay that debt to society. Debts demand to be paid, but you owe your father and I debt too. We gave you all the opportunities, love and support to be anything in life, but this is how you repaid us and that's not going to work. So here's the debt you're going to pay. When you go to prison, you will not get in one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type of gangs because you're scared because now you're the minority in there. You were never raised to be a racist. You're not going to start now. 
She said, you will not get any tattoos while you're inside that prison. And for all y'all listening out there, I'm showing Jason right now my arms and sleeves. There's no tats, man. Literally no tats. And these guys in prison want to tattoo every inch of your body in a joint. These guys hit me up constantly, Jason. They're like, man, Wes, let me put a tattoo on you, man. And I tell them the same thing every time. Dude, I can't do it, man. My mom said no. You know, that's the best I got, dude. So good. Yeah. Because then my mom said this. She said, no gangs, no tattoos. You come back as the man that we raised or don't come back to us at all. Wow. You know, the minute that he said that, I was thinking of the movie 300 when the king is going off to battle and his wife says, come back carrying your shield or on it. And that's kind of how it sounded, like his mom set this amazing standard for him before he goes into prison, and it got me thinking. It got me thinking about the guardrails that we have in our lives and the guardrails that get set by the people closest to us. And is it possible that if you don't have anybody in your life that's helping you set those guardrails, you won't become the best version of yourself? And Gary Keller, who, again, if, if you're new to the, to the show here, Gary Keller and Jay Papazan wrote the book, The Millionaire Real Estate Agent, and this podcast carries that name. And Gary and Jay always say that life's journey is about hitting your maximum potential. And those of you that have kids, isn't that your wish for them too, so that they hit their maximum potential? But I would submit to you that it is impossible for anybody to hit their maximum potential if there are no guardrails put in place. Now, I'm not suggesting that we stifle growth with red-lined rules and laws. What I am suggesting, though, is that when you give talented people guardrails and then tell them to figure it out within them, that gives them the space that they need to go as fast as they want to go and as big as they want to get there. If you're leading people, consider this. The problem with people who you need to tell what to do is as soon as you stop telling, they stop doing. But talented people, when given a mission and a goal, and then given guardrails to succeed, will win every time. So county jail, the only thing I knew about prison, that the only time I knew about incarceration was county jail. And, um, and I'm looking for guidance, man. I'm looking for, but I mean, the, the, everything that comes back to me, and I'm asking all these guys how I'm going to survive, and everything coming back to me is get into a gang. And in county jail, the thought is crossing my mind that I may never go home again because I have to live in this world. That's what people are telling me too. Forget what your mom and dad said, man. They don't have to live in prison with you. In fact, they, guys told me the gang will be your family now. Don't worry about your real family. And this is like, I mean, you're talking about detaching yourself from everything you've known. I'm a white middle-class guy in America, Jason. I've never, I didn't know about it's been to prison at this point. I had no idea. I'm kind of a fish out of water. But there was this one guy that I run into in Dallas County Jail, this old black man named Muhammad. And Muhammad is a career criminal. He's been in and out of prison his entire life, but he's the most positive guy I've ever met in my life. And Muhammad, every morning he would come up and he would pick me up like a ray of sunshine in that dark place. He was just a real positive guy. And so uh, one morning he comes up to my bunk. He's got a cup of coffee in his hands, smile on his face. And he's like, West, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads and these dummies. Talk about you got to get into a gang. He said, don't listen to them. He said, but let me tell you what prison's going to really be like. And that's when he explains the realities of prison. And he's telling me, this is a black man telling me this, that prison's all about race. He said all the inmates want it to be about race. And what that means is that everybody breaks off in their own racial group when you get to prison and you're expected to stay in that group. You can't cross over and go hang out with other races. That's a no-no in there. 
because everybody gets into their own gangs. But he's telling me the strongest man in prison always walks alone. He said, you don't have to do this. You don't have to do what everybody else does, but it's the hardest, steepest path possible, which you're about to go down. When you get in there, you're going to fight the white gangs. If you survive the white gangs, you'll fight the black gangs. And the white gangs will send the black gangs after you. But if you survive that, you'll earn the right to walk alone. And he tells me the truth about fighting. This is the truth that saved me back then. And Jason, honestly, it's saved me every day since then. He told me, he said, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. Some days you win, some days you lose. And it's okay to lose. Get back up. And that's what he's telling me, just get back up. And it's really true, Jason, in life. No one I've found counts your wins and losses. No one but you. You count that. No one pays attention to you that much, by the way. But people do watch to see does he or she get back up when adversity hits. And that's what he's telling me, get back up. But when he's telling me this back in 2009, I'm looking back at this guy like a deer in headlights, man. All this violence and terror I'm about to go into. And that's when he shares with me the story of the coffee bean. And he told me, I said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. He said, I'm going to put three things in this pot of boiling water to show you what this is going to be like. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. And he walks me through it. The carrot goes in hard but becomes soft. The egg goes in with that soft liquid inside. But prison, the water, turned the soft liquid inside hard. The heart became hardened. But the coffee bean, he said, in the same pot of boiling water, changed the pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee. It was the change agent. And that's what he's telling me. If you want to come back as someone your parents recognize, you have to be a coffee bean. The power was inside the coffee bean to change the world around the coffee bean. And he said the coffee bean was the smallest thing. It had the power to change everything. And you are small too, but you can change the whole world around you with the power inside you. Man, I felt empowered. That was it. This is the message that really clicked to me because what it did is it put the power back inside me. And that's one of the things I, when I go around all over the country, all over the world sharing the story of the coffee bean, that's what I want people to feel is the empowerment that I felt when he first said that to me. And the last four words he says to me, and I'm about to leave, I'm about to go get on the prison bus and leave county jail for the last time. He says four words to me on the way out the door. He's like, West, be a coffee bean. Four words that changed my life, Jason, because if this old man would shoot me straight, he put the power back inside me. If the power's inside me, it's not in the world around me. The guards, the criminal justice system, the inmates, it's in me. And that's what I, I go around telling people about is the power's inside you to change the world around you. And, and here's the deal. I took that message to the biggest pot of boiling water there is, a Texas maximum security level five prison, the highest security level there is. And I turned that pot of boiling water into a pot of coffee inside that place. What you just heard, what he just said, what I heard him say, that's the story of humanity's maximum potential. Because he looks up and what arguably might be the deepest, darkest place that I can imagine in these United States and asks the question, how do I go in there like the coffee bean and turn it into something better than that? There's a book called The Motivation Manifesto by Brendan Bouchard. And what he says in it is the ultimate narrative of the human species is its quest for more freedom and the related struggles to ascend to a higher standard of living and relating. Now, I know that's just a sentence, but do you realize how big of a sentence that is? The ultimate narrative of the human species is its quest for more freedom. Think about where Damon finds himself in probably one of the least free places on the planet and the related struggles to ascend to a higher standard of living and relating. And he wakes up every day trying to relate to the people around him to improve their lives. 
I can't imagine how difficult that was. But you know what I can imagine? How easy it would be for me to do that tomorrow in my life. Because you know what? I'm not sleeping in a cell. I don't have to live by those rules. I'm not at physical risk like he was. And I can wake up tomorrow. Heck, I could leave this room right now and go coffee being somebody's life. Now, Damon had to go to prison a maximum security prison to learn it so that he could come back and wake you and I up. Here's my wish for you. When you stop the car at wherever you're driving right now, the first person that you see, can you coffee bean that person? How about the second person that you see? How about the person that you walk by and you don't even know their name? What can you do for them? Imagine, friends, with the reach of this show as the number one podcast in all of real estate, how many people's lives we can change because you choose to be the coffee bean. So, you have these moments, you get through all of this, and then you end up in front of a parole board, which is, I, th- I think, ran by a-, a woman, I don't quite recall her name, and you have a really interesting conversation with her. Yeah, so it, the parole board comes to see me. Um, you know, just to back up a little bit, whenever I was in prison, after the fighting was over, I had to figure out how to become a coffee bean, right? Because that's what it's about. How I've got this great message, but how do I practically apply this in my life? And I started having, I started developing these ways of being a coffee and like I'm cracking the code. And that's what I share with the audiences when I go around talking is how I did it. Cause I truly believe that if I could do it in there, then you could do it out here, especially with salespeople, people that are self-motivators, right? People that have to get up and go every day, you know, simple rules. Like every day I would wake up and I would have to focus on the gratitude, find the things I'm grateful for in life. This is important. A good friend of mine named Lee Brower, he's one of these personal coaches out there. He has an acronym for it called BIG, Begin in Gratitude. So I would begin my days finding something I'm grateful for and focus on that because I would want to stay on the positive path. Smiling everywhere you go. Your smile is powerful, man. Your smile changes the energy everywhere you go. And when you smile, people smile back. And this is one of the things Muhammad told me. You've got to like use that energy the best way you can because your energy is going to attract other energy like yours. If you're negative, you attract the negative. But if you're positive, you attract other positives. Lessons like waking up every day and working out on myself in three areas, spiritually, mentally, physically. Every day, I had to make the time to work out my mind, my body, and my soul. I learned what the secret to life was inside of the prison. The secret to life is servant leadership. Servant leadership is helping other people reach their goals in life. You know, Jason, when we're helping other people, that's when we're at our best. That's how we grow. When I was in prison, I couldn't take college classes. I had a bachelor's degree already, but I could teach other men how to read, how to write. I got them ready for the GED test so that someday, whenever they they had an opportunity, they could become a better version of themselves too. I I learned about the things you can control and the things you can't control because prison is a very controlled environment. And when you go to prison, you're stripped of everything, especially for me, it was the ego and the pride. I had to be stripped of all that. And I learned that there's only four things you control in life. And it's, it's really, it's quite simple, but it's hard to apply. You control what you think. You control what you say. You control what you feel. And to the extent that, what do you do with your feelings? Do you talk about your feelings? Do you know, do you know someone you can talk to? If you don't, you should. You should never suffer in silence. And lastly, you control what you do. These are the things that most people see through your actions. So what you think, what you say, what you feel, and what you do. And if it wasn't one of those four things, I just didn't have any control over it. I find that in life, I meet, let me see if I can say this the right way. I meet more people out here in the free world who are locked up than I ever did when I served time in a real prison. Wow. 
What is what does that mean? More people are imprisoned by their thoughts and by their things. Think about cell phones. Think about the things that imprison us. More people are imprisoned by their thoughts and by their things than by steel bars and barbed wire and concrete. When I got out of prison, Jason, when I walked out of prison, it was like a trifecta of freedom because I had already freed myself spiritually and mentally. I was a free man inside there. I was the freest I've ever been inside of that prison, spiritually and mentally. I had a spiritual awakening inside this place. And that's the component that you have to have in life to actually change your life and turn around. There's got to be a spiritual component because here's the deal. Human beings are only capable of so much. You've got to tap into something. And I don't know what your spiritual component is. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about religion here either. I'm talking about your spirituality, your conscious contact with whatever you call God. Tap into that. That's where the source is. That's the power in your life because we are not powerful enough to transform our life. The, the stuff you see going on in my life, that's not Damon West doing that. I had a spiritual awakening inside that place, man. That's a God thing, brother. And, and I had to tap into that. I had to surrender, first of all. In order to tap into that, you have to surrender to that. But so many people out here in the free world, they have this idea of control. They want to think that they, they control all these elements going on around them, and, and that imprisons you. So I'm, I'm loving this. So I understand these four things. I control what I think. I control what I say. I control how I feel. And I control what I do. You talk to different sales organizations all over the planet. How, how do I take these ideas and actually, instead of just hearing them, how do I put them to action in my life? Yeah, so here's a great question. Real estate. We'll, we'll go with just real estate right now. We're This is a real estate podcast. So whenever you go in and you talk to a potential client, you know, the person that came before you, uh, maybe it's another broker from your same brokerage firm. Maybe it's, maybe it's someone that just had a contact with that's another real estate agent for a different firm. But if that person has had a bad interaction with someone in your field, they may have a negative mindset about who you are. Now you're working from a place less than zero to, to just get the conversation started again. But you have to be able to do that. You have to be able to bridge that gap because in, when you're working in sales, you're going to face a lot of rejection. I know how it is, Jason. I'm an ex-con. People aren't just falling all over themselves to hang out with an ex-con, right? <laughs> because so many ex-cons have come before me and burned the bridge. They've blown the road up in front of me. And now I'm going out and I'm showing people I'm not that person. I know you had all these negative interactions with those people, but but check me out who for who for, for who I am and what I've done in my body of work. And that's what we have to do in sales. We have to be able to overcome the obstacles that are already there in front of us by no fault of our own. We've got to overcome that. Branding. You know, when we're working on the things we can and can't control, we're focused on our brand. The brand, uh, let's say Keller Williams, that's a brand. You, you work for that brand, but you also have your own personal brand, right? You are a brand. Everybody is a brand. And, and your brand is who you are. It's how you act. It's the way people perceive you. When I was in prison, I was building my brand. I was building my brand, how it was different in front of the guards, in front of the people who worked in medical, the people that worked in the chapel, my parents, when they came to visit me, you know, all the other inmates interacting around me, the parole board. They saw a guy that had built his own brand in there. And that's what we have to do. Even though you work for a company that has a brand, you are a brand. Build your brand. Make people understand that, that is, man, that person right there is who I want to be aligned with. And that's when they start turning over their other relationships to you too. That's your brand. Your brand is part of Keller Williams. Your brand is what you do and who you are on your own. And I have to do these things in my own life. I've been doing it since I was in prison, but I was working on building a brand. And here's the thing about your brand. What you think, what you say, what you feel, what you do, the what you do part. Don't 
change message. Whoever you are, whatever your brand is, stick with your brand, stay with that thing. And so many people make the mistake that I see that they they don't see the results fast enough. We want this overnight success. Everybody wants the overnight success. It doesn't exist. It's not real. There's no such thing as an overnight success. The truth is you're going to have to put in this work over and over again. You're going to have to take action in your life. And that's going to mean you stick with your message over and over again. And you may not see the results for two years, three years. It took me five years really to see the be a coffee bean message really start to take hold. But I stuck with it. And now the coffee bean message is a big thing. As you're in prison and you're living the, the coffee bean idea, and I'm sure you start to see individual incidences of it showing up. Do you start to realize how big your life can be then? Or do you not even let yourself fantasize about that? Both, both. I, 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 the world I'm in in there, it's the biggest thing happening in there, right? Because these other guys, I've taken the biggest liability in the world, which is living in prison. And I'm, I'm seeing myself as turning this liability into an asset. And that's really what you want to get to in life. When you can take liabilities and make them assets, you've turned the negative to a big positive. I'm seeing it in there, but I live in an artificial world, Jason. I live in a bubble. I live in a microcosm. Prisons are not real places. They're artificial environments, but I know that there's potential. I got a letter from my favorite teacher in 2011, Mr. Jellin. He was my seventh grade Texas history teacher. And he wrote me this letter when I'm in prison and, and said, you know, basically said, Damon, you've been the highest, the highest, the lowest, the lowest, but I, but I think you'll be able to bounce back. He said, you've always been a leader. He used a football metaphor. He said, you were always able to hit to find the open receiver, right? I think you'll bounce back from this. And he said, I think you should, you should consider sharing your story with people when you get out. I think you should even start with young people because you can give them hope in their story too. And um, he said the four words in that letter, the four words that every human being has to hear, Jason, I believe in you. Those four words appeared in the letter that came from the free world my favorite teacher that believed in me. And I mean, I slept with that letter, man. I, you couldn't separate me from that letter because it had those words in it. And that was the seed that planted the first little tree that became this forest now, that which is the, the coffee bean message. But I didn't understand how I was going to do it when I got out. First of all, I had to get out, right? And that's the thing about the parole board meeting. 2015, I've done seven years on this life sentence. I know I'm up for parole. I don't think I can make that first parole. And the reason why I'm up for parole at seven years is because when you have a non-aggravated sentence, you get credit for good time, for work time. I was a model inmate. I was a coffee bean. And I worked in the chapel. That was my job. I was a chapel clerk. The chaplain came in that day, Chaplain Vaughn's. He was real excited. He was smiling. He said, West, security's looking for you, man. They just called your name on the radio. The parole board is here to see you. Now, now before you go in, do you know that you're about to be asked what seems like a trick question as soon as you walk in there? Like, does everyone get asked the same question? <sighs> no, man. And here's the thing, man. It's such a, it's, there's so much anxiety going in this. This is the world you don't control. And, and like, hey, do as I say, not as I do, right? I still, I'm a human being, man. I still, I, I, I don't have, I don't have spiritual perfection. I have spiritual prog progress in my life, right? Not, not spiritual perfection. So I don't always adhere to what I'm saying about think, say, feel, and do. I have these thoughts of how do I control this conversation, but I don't have control over that. This parole board person does. So you don't know what she's going to ask? Don't know. I just know that there's a poison pill question that she can ask, and if she asks it, I'm in trouble. What, dude, I, I, you're about to tell the world what she asked. Once I read it, I was thinking, there's no good answer. There's none. What was the question? So everybody's warned me that if they ask you this question, you're in trouble. The question is, do you think you got too much time? 
I got 65 years for organized crime, man, for a bunch of meth-related burglaries. Um, I did everything they said I did, Jason. So, I mean, look, I, and, and I'm in the mindset that we... This is another thing about being a coffee bean. You, you become accountable in life. You own your stuff, man. Yeah, but owning it. But that question, if, if you say yes, I think I got too much time, then you're not showing any sort of, of, of redemption or personal ownership. Right. If you say no, then they're like, well, then you're here for the right period. Yeah. Well, how do you, what, what are you thinking the moment she asks? Did you know? My stomach dropped, man. But, but I... But I wanted to see what kind of rapport I had, and 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 I got the feeling that I'm just going to shoot this. I'm just going to shoot her straight. And so I told her I don't feel comfortable answering that question because here's the deal: if I say, well, just like you explained it, if I say, yeah, I got too much time, then you'll you'll say, well, you don't, you haven't taken accountability for the things you've done. Sit around here longer and think about that, you know? Or no, yeah, I got the right sentence. Well, good, do some more of that. You know, you're in the right place. But she answered the question, and I told her I said I just don't feel comfortable, and here's why. She told me, you got too much time. She answered the question. And I, I, it made me relax a little bit because it made me say, okay, someone has looked at this as a third party, not a jury, not a judge in the moment and time. And you know, she's like, hey, listen, we don't see a lot of Damon West come through the criminal justice system. She's like, you know, you had it all. You had every advantage, every privilege, and every opportunity over everybody your entire life. She told me, you're the definition of a privileged person in this country. But you blew through all of your privileges, Mr. West. You became a drug addict. You became a criminal. You become a thief. A jury in Dallas gives you life in prison. But instead of letting your license define you, you changed yourself inside this prison. There's no doubt about the change you made to yourself. The coffee. She said, but what got our attention, the reason why we're, we're here today is you didn't just change yourself. You changed the entire prison. That is so good. One man changed his prison. So they've been watching. They know. The wardens talk. Everybody knows. And, and, and my walk through prison, it's like an Andy Dufresne, man. It's like this guy. Remember when Andy escapes and uh, Red's telling the story about it. We, tell, we sit around, we tell Andy stories, you know, and people are laughing. They're positive. That was the impact I was having in there. And, and I wasn't trying to be like Andy Dufresne. In fact, I hadn't seen Shawshank since 1995. I didn't see it again until I got out and watched it with my mom and my dad when I got out of prison. But Andy's journey was a lot like my journey, man. Andy left the place a better place than, when, than how he found it. And the lady is acknowledging that. You've changed this entire prison around you. She says, so my question, I've got one question for you. If you could be remembered for being anything in life, anything at all, tell me what that would be in just one word. Go. And I remember just, I breathed out and I relaxed because that's an easy question for a coffee bean, right? And my answer was useful. I just want to be useful because Jason, I know this to be true. Every human being, we want to be useful, man. We want to have purpose in life. And I'm no different. Those, those men and women in prison, everybody wants to be useful again. And I said, I just want to be useful and I can be useful, useful inside this prison or I could be useful out in the free world again. November 16th, 2015, a day I will never forget because I walked out of a Texas prison. Now I'm not a free man. You're not looking at a free man in front of you. I got I got a little more time left on parole, Jason. I'm on <laughs> I'm on parole in the state of Texas until the year 2073. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 50 more years. And but it's it's okay. It was 58 when I got out. So I'm chipping away at this thing. And look, I know what a bad day looks like. That's another thing I talk to people about, and salespeople especially. Perspective, man. Life has given you all these valuable days called perspective. You earn those days too, because the bad days. Man, bad days are, are, they look like this to me. You got to define them. A bad day is when a job is lost, a marriage fails, a bankruptcy happens, someone gets hurt, a child gets hurt, a child dies, a pet dies. Those are bad days. Most of our days aren't bad days. 
It's your mindset. It's how you look at something. It's like traffic, you know? Some days you sit in traffic and the traffic bothers you. Other days you sit in the same traffic, it doesn't bother you at all. Is it the traffic or is it you? It's you. It's you. It's always you. And he's right. Oh, look, all he's providing right now is perspective. He's saying, you think you have a bad day? Think about losing a child. That's a bad day. This idea I thought was so eloquently explained by Cody Gibson. If you haven't listened to Cody's show with us, his episode, please go do that. And he explained it around this idea of rejection. He had come off of stage and someone said, gosh, Cody, I want to get as good as you are at handling rejection. And Cody said, well, I hope you never get good at handling rejection. That's terrible. And the person said, well, wait a second. I'm a real estate agent, so I'm going to hear rejection 99 times for every one yes I get. And Cody said, I think you are wildly confused on what rejection is. He said, Gary Keller told him that the only people that can reject you are the people you'd want next to you on your deathbed. Everything else is just feedback. Real rejection can only be given to you by the people you care about most. That's perspective on rejection. Damon's simply giving you perspective on good days and bad. But here's what I think the takeaway is. That until you pull out and think about something larger than yourself, you're doomed to think that the things that are happening to you matter at an incredible rate, and they don't. Here's a perspective that Damon is giving. Friends, if you think you're having a tough day because blank, imagine what a really tough day is. And by the way, the answer isn't to avoid tough days. The answer is just do tough better. I had to get to a place in life where I could find Muhammad, right? So I get out of prison and I go back to live with my parents in Southeast Texas. And, um, you know, I've got this dream of sharing the story in front of audiences, but I found out real quick, you can't just go knock on the door of a school and say, I just got out of prison. I want to talk to your kids, right? <laughs> it's not a good formula, man. It doesn't work. I tried, tried it. They may lock you back up depending on your crime. Yeah. So I had to find people that would believe in me in Southeast Texas. And I found this, this local law enforcement officer and a local judge. And eventually I convinced them to es escort me into schools. And originally my presentation started out as like a warning to others about the dangers of drugs, the consequences of bad decisions. And I was great with that. I didn't know what my purpose was in life, but I felt called to do it at that point then like that. But there just weren't a lot of places for me to speak when I got out of prison. But in my parents' spare bedroom, because I lived in my parents' spare bedroom for the first two years I was, I was out of prison. And let me paint this picture for you. I'm 40 years old. I just got out of prison. I'm on parole for the rest of my life. I got a job making just above minimum wage and I live in my parents' spare bedroom. Which way, you, you ladies listening to this right now, which way you swipe on that guy on Twitter, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> <a> way. right. <laughs> that would have been a tough dating profile. I wasn't on Twitter. I'm, I'm not, not, Twitter, um, not uh, Tinder. Tinder, yeah. Which way you swipe on him on Tinder? I've never, I would never had a Tinder profile. But that was my life out of prison. So, the first two years I was out of prison with my, living in my parents' spare bedroom, there weren't a lot of places for me to speak, but in my parents' spare bedroom, there was a mirror in there. Just happened to be there when I moved in. Put in the work. This is what I talk to people about all the time. You have to put in the work in life. Anything you want to be good at, you got to get in your reps. I didn't have reps to get in out there as places to speak. There weren't places for me to speak. But in front of that mirror every night for two years, I practiced my presentation that I have today. I got it right in front of that mirror, waiting for the opportunity to share it in front of the audience that would propel me to a bigger place, right? And I had this dream of sharing my story in front of college football programs because I play college football, man. And I, and I know I can get through to these college athletes. But the thing is, I'm 20 years later, just got out of prison. Man, these college coaches don't know me. It's been 1996 and I took my last snap. But on January 12th, 2017, 
a buddy of mine in Houston calls me up and he says, hey, Damon, Houston's 90 miles from Beaumont, where I live. He says, hey, Damon, tonight is the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Award. They're going to name the best college football coach in America. I see the eight best coaches in the country are in this room right now. I've got an extra press pass if you want to go. He works for KHOU. So, man, I haul butt, Jason. I drive the 90 miles from Beaumont to Houston, and I'm practicing my elevator pitch in my car of what I'm going to tell these coaches when I meet them or why they should bring me in to talk to their team. He sneaks me in the back door of the Toyota Center, hands me a press pass, and there I am, man. And all these coaches there, USC, Wisconsin, Penn State, P.J. Fleck, they're all there. And I'm running around, I'm shaking every one of these coaches' hands, and I'm giving them my pitch of why they should bring me in to talk to their team. And every single coach I met that night slammed the door in my face. And it was brutal, man. They all told me no. It was fast, too. I just got rejected one after another. In one hour, I've been told no seven times by the eight coaches that are there. That's a no every eight minutes. Well, I tell you what, every realtor out there knows you were just getting close to a yes. Yes. Well, but it's hard, man. Well, you didn't. You're right. You didn't yeah. know. It. <laughs> and this is the thing. This is why this is this story in front of salespeople, realtors, is fire, man. Because this is, you know, you, you're, you're listening to this going, yeah, I've been there. So, I'm literally seven of the eight coaches down in one hour. I'm in the corner of the Toyota Center. I'm licking my wounds. I'm feeling sorry for myself. And the voice in my head is screaming at me, get out of here, man. Go home. The voice in my head called me an imposter. You ever felt like an imposter, Jace? I have. I have. Yeah. So I'm in this room and, and the voice in my head is screaming at me to leave. And, and I'm thinking about leaving. But I'm going to tell you something I quit doing a long time ago. Listening to myself. And you shouldn't listen to yourself either. Because the voice in your head, it could be fear talking to you. And I know what, fe- man, fear is a liar, Jason. I know that fear is a liar. So instead of listening to myself, I talk to myself. And I'm telling myself in the corner of the Toyota Center, man, you're not going anywhere, Damon. You survived prison. You survived something way worse than this. Now I'm applying that perspective, Jason, the perspective of what the bad day looks like so I can get through this day, this moment. So there's one more coach to talk to in that room, and I'm going after him. I stalked Dabo Sweeney around that room. And Jason, I look like a nut, man. I mean, and he's the hardest guy to get through in the room. His team had just beat Alabama two nights before for the national championship. I'm weaving in and out of tables. I'm hiding behind fake plants. Every conversation Dabo has, I keep trying to jump in. Dabo has seen me at this point. Security has seen me now. They're about to eject me from the Toyota Center, man. But I finally get in front of Dabo and I give Dabo my best stuff for about 60 seconds. And when I came up for air, Dabo was like, you got a card on you, dude? And he's just a little freaked out, right? I was like, so I gave him my card and he snatched it from me and he says, I'll check you out. And he's gone, man. I've just occupied this guy longer than anybody in the room that night. Dabo's gone, man. And man, that's a no. Looked like a no, felt like a no, but I'm gonna tell you what I felt good about. That no. Because that no was when I left it all on the field that night. That no was like Muhammad telling me, you don't have to win all those fights. You got to fight all those fights. That no was me making all my calls and knocking on every door. Now I can go home. Went home and slept like a baby. Clear conscience. I forgot all about that night. Four months later, though, I'm at work. I work at a law firm. And um, I get a phone call. And it's um, uh, the director of football operations at Clemson University. It's an email. I get an email from a guy named Mike Dooley the director of football operations at Clemson. And the email says this. He said, hey, Damon, Coach Swinney met you at a board show in Houston. He'd love to have you come talk to the team. Do you have August 1st open? Dude, I got every first open, man. I got, <laughs> I got nothing going on in 2017, man. So August 1st, 2017, I go speak to the Clemson Tigers, the defending national champions of college football. And when I get done with my presentation that night, the presentation that I had just practiced for two years in front of a mirror, man, Dabo doesn't know that. Those guys in the room don't know that. I haven't spoken anywhere at this point, but I'm in the biggest stage there is. Dabo's in my face after the presentation in the team room. And Dabo's a very high-energy guy. He's like, oh, my God. He said, I've never 
seen my players respond like that to a speaker's story. I've, I've, never, I've honestly never heard a story like yours before. He said, have you been to Alabama yet to talk to their football team? I'm like, no, Dabo. I've been to Clemson, dude. I hadn't been anywhere. He said, well, I just text Nick Saban. We'll see what happens. The next day, I land from my trip to Clemson, turn on my phone in Houston, voicemail and text message from the director of football operations at Alabama. See you in Tuscaloosa in three weeks. Just like that, Dabo Sweeney starts kicking open the doors to college football. Kirby Smart's calling. Lincoln Riley's calling. Chip Kelly's calling. All these college football coaches are calling me because Dabo has actively become my advocate now. He's calling these coaches saying, you got to bring this guy in. So there I am. I'm living this dream. I'm talking in front of these college football programs. But the real magic in my life happens one year after that first presentation of Clemson. This is August of 2018. I was working at the law firm. I'm at my desk and, and my cell phone rings. And on the other end of the cell phone is a guy named John Gordon. Now, John Gordon, Jason, for, for the listeners out there you don't know John, John's one of the biggest motivational speakers and authors in the world. This guy is massive. Millions of books sold. Uh, he, he's real famous for the book called The Energy Bus. And um, I follow John every day on Twitter for my inspiration. And so I'm like, John, dude, I know who you are. How do you know I am? How'd you get my cell phone number? He said, Dabo Sweeney. Wow. He said, I was just talking to Clemson's football team, Damon and Dabo. Right after I got off the, the, out of the team room, Dabo brings me to the office for 30 minutes to tell me your story. So that's how you end up co-authoring the book with him. With John Gordon. It's so good. Massive, massive moment in my life. And John is like, Damon, Dabo told me your whole story, but here's the deal. And this is before the, before the pandemic, John said this. John said, Damon, the world needs the coffee bean message. Let's deliver this message to the world. Will you write a book with me? We'll call it the coffee bean. And so the next year, the summer of 2019, exactly 10 years from when I first heard the story of the coffee bean in a jail cell in 2009 from Muhammad, the book, The Coffee Bean, comes out, and it becomes a phenomenon here in America. Four to six weeks on the bestseller list. It jumps overseas and gets published in all these different languages in the world. Everybody in the world now has a copy of The Coffee Bean on their shelves But it all goes back to that one night in Houston, Texas, Jason, that January 12th, 2017, when I'm in the corner of the Toyota Center, licking my wounds, I'm feeling sorry for myself. And if I listen to the voice in my head that night and I walk out that door, we're not doing this podcast today. The world, the world doesn't have the coffee bean message. And that's what I tell people, man. You can't give up in life before the miracle happens, before your Dabo Sweeney moment. You got to knock on all those doors. You got to make all those calls. The only question you know the answer to in life is the one you don't ask. That's a no every time. You got a 50-50 shot of getting the answer you want if you just ask the question. Dude, your story is so big. It's wild, man. It's so big. I can't believe it's my life. I tell my wife every day, I can't believe this is my life, Kendall. It's the craziest thing. All right, Damon, we could talk to you all day. Unfortunately, though, this podcast doesn't go all day. But so, I appreciate the opportunity today. Thank uh, you for having me in, man. Well, so look, I, I know that there's a trillion people out there now that actually want to hear all of the details. Which of your books would you tell them to go read first? I would say if you want to get it all, The Change Agent has the whole story. That's the one that we're optioning that right now to become a movie and a TV series. Dak Prescott is my business partner in that. Dak's got his own production company. He's got a production company on the side. So Dak and I are working on making that into a movie. Friends, read that book. When you when you read some of the prison diaries and you read some of the ways that he's describing it, there are some sections in there some ideas that those who have been oppressed become the best oppressors. I mean, there's just some ideas in there that are going to knock your socks off. It's fantastic. I'm giving it all 10 thumbs up. Thank Perfect. you. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, you want to invite you to the lightning round. Let's so do it. This is off the top of your head real quick. I listen to all your podcasts, brother. I, I've been waiting on this. <laughs> this is the problem with this. It's no longer the lightning round. Everyone comes in prepared. But 
Okay, Damon, what's your favorite food? My favorite food is probably, you know, I was listening to, was it Phil, the the, the British guy? He, he he's, he's like, I love a good filet and some some uh, asparagus. But no, I, I'm a meat guy. So I love I love good meat and good, good vegetables go with a lot of greens. All things steak. All things steak. All things steak. What's your favorite sound? My favorite sound is violins and pianos. I love that sound. It's why Coldplay has always been one of my favorite groups because Coldplay uses a combination of both of those. Well, so, stop the lightning round. It's interesting to me, but you mentioned that in the book. You say that you listen to classical music just to give yourself an escape. Yes, I would. I would listen to. So you have in prison. You can buy a radio at the commissary, and you have to have headphones with this. You don't disturb the people around you. Literally, Jason, I could be standing up on because I lived on the second row in the dorms at this time. I could be standing up on the balcony on my row when my bunk overlooks the, the day room, and there's a melee breaking out. There's a brawl breaking out. It's prison, man. Prison's a dangerous place. And I'm sitting there listening to Mozart. This is the weirdest video to Mozart. You know, you hear the violins, the cellos, you hear the pianos playing and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, that was what I would listen. I would listen. I would listen to classical music, and sometimes you have this weird dichotomy of a weird video going in front of you of a melee. Well, you're in good company. Mo Anderson picked the violin um, as part of an orchestra. So, oh, wow. and, and, and Phil he, picked the piano. And, and Phil yeah. picked the piano. So yeah. we're, we're doing good on that one. Um, favorite color? Orange. Orange. Yeah. Okay. Is there a book, and it can't be one of yours, that you would like people to read so that it becomes the voice in their head? Two books: Victor Frankel, Man's Search for Meaning. One of the best books I've ever read. In fact, when you get to prison and if someone cares about you enough, they're going to put this book in your hands at first. Viktor Frankl was in a concentration camp. Uh, I think he was in Auschwitz. And um, he wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. And it, it was literally the book that set my mind right in the right place because he survived that experience. And you know, I got to understand, Viktor Frankl is an innocent person living in a concentration camp, but his mindset of how he got through that Great book. Well, and I think one of the great features of that book is how he comes through it with still compassion for the very same people who had put him there. The guards. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Yeah, which is All fascinating. Right. Second book. Second book is um, The Strength to Love is the name of the book. And there's a sermon inside the book. And it was called The Death of Evil Upon the Seashore. It's just a bunch of Martin Luther King Jr. sermons. But The Death of Evil Upon the Seashore, it had my great, the, my favorite quote is in that, that sermon. And Martin Luther King's talking about this, this historian that lived in the 20th century named Charles A. Beard. The most brilliant historian there ever was in the 20th century. Everybody would go to this guy with historical questions. So somebody asked Charles A. Beard one day, what lessons has history taught you? And his answer becomes my favorite quote. Here's the answer he gave. Most brilliant historian there is. First, whom the gods would destroy, they must first make mad with power. Second, the mills of God grind slowly, yet they grind exceedingly small. Third, the bee fertilizes the flower that it robs. Fourth, when it is dark enough, you can see the stars. That's good. Break that down. We don't have time for that right now, but break that down. That's really good. The most brilliant historian of the 20th century said that about history. I'm ending it right there. It's not going to get any better. We, I, it, it's just not going to get any better. Damon, thank you so much for your time today. Brother, thank you very much. And, and I, would, I do want to say, my favorite movie in the lightning round, Shawshank Redemption. Well, I knew it was coming. <laughs> I knew it was coming. All right, everybody. Andy Dufresne on this side, um, signing off. Thank you so much, Damon. Continue to take your message to the world because yeah, to be a coffee bean might be the greatest gift anyone could give anybody else. Brother, I'm, 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 out, I'm out there doing it and I'm ready to take it to Keller Williams one day too, brother. There it is. Thanks, everyone. 
It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable, right? But I, here's the thing. You can be anywhere that you want to be in five years. Damon would say seven years, but the idea is the same. It doesn't matter where you are today. This was a guy who was in the deepest recesses of the Texas D5 security maximum prison. And seven years later, he's traveling the globe, inspiring the masses and writing best-selling books because of what happened to him, not despite of it. That's so beautiful to even think about. Where do you want to be? I want you to stop right now. Where do you want to be in five to seven years? Because here's what happens. Gary says that people overestimate what they're going to do in the short term. They underestimate what they're going to do in the long term, and they never hit their maximum potential. For Damon, he had to have all of his freedom completely stripped away for him to start thinking with complete freedom. Think about that. I want you to think with complete freedom. Where do you want to be in five to seven years? You know, as I was sitting with Damon after the show and we were talking, I asked him, I said, did you ever run into Muhammad, the guy that gives you this amazing insight about being the carrot or the egg and the coffee bean? And he says, unfortunately, he didn't. But what he was able to do is find Muhammad's family. He had passed away. And this family was absolutely thriving. You see, they had found Damon's books. They had read it. They, they knew who he was and what he was doing, and they couldn't believe it. And now to this day, there's a scholarship where they literally help children from the same high school that Muhammad went to. The same rough school where he learned how to be a criminal is the place where Damon and Muhammad's family is teaching people how to live their biggest life. And do you know why? because you can be anywhere you want to be within five to seven years. Friends, go out, think about your life, and do likewise. I believe in you. And there it is. That wraps another episode. Friends, I don't know what you're taking out of this. I really don't. I'll tell you what I want you to be taking out of it, which is these are the people that are having tremendously big lives. And the reason it's happening is because they're setting up the models and systems to do just that. Gary Keller told me that leadership is teaching people how to think so that they do the things they need to do when they need to do them so that ultimately they get the things they want when they want to have them. And that's what I want for you. You're all leaders, but it begins with leading ourselves. If you're enjoying this podcast, I want you to click the subscribe button anywhere that you get your podcasts. We want to be the voice in your head every single week. And every week, we're dropping new content. We also send out a newsletter at the conclusion of every show to make sure that you get the highest points and the models and systems that were discussed. So if you want to sign up, I need your name and your email address. Head over to the millionaireagentpodcast.com. Millionaireagentpodcast.com. Enter your name and your email address, and every week, that newsletter will be in your box. Friends, you just went on a journey. I hope that what happens between now and the next time we meet is absolutely wonderful for you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. The views, thoughts, and opinions of the guest represent those of the guest and not KWRI and its affiliates and should not be construed as financial, economic, legal, tax, or other advice. This podcast is provided without any warranty or guarantee of its accuracy, completeness, timeliness, or results from using the information. 